Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the new coaches playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. I'm going to make an assumption and you tell me if I'm wrong. You feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. I know it's true. There are always too many things to do and too little time. If you're like me, your boss will walk down the hallway and shout, go home, Beltran. That's why I'm telling everyone about the 40-hour workweek with Angela Watson. Angela was a guest on this very podcast back in season one, and she shared her ideas for managing your time, teaching, and stuff to help you make the most of your time at work while making time for home too. But that was just the beginning. In her membership, The 40-Hour Workweek, Angela helps you focus on what matters to have a purposeful and productive workday and then go home. Angela helps teachers find on average 11 hours a week that they can take back for themselves while still being a great teacher. The best part is that Angela has a new membership, especially for coaches. She partnered with my friend and coffee buddy, Nicole Turner of Simply Coaching to create the 40 hour work week for coaches. Check it out at buzzingwithmissb.com slash 40 hour week and get your time back. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey, coach. The first couple months of season four of this podcast are all about the human side of coaching. We're talking communication, mindset, resistance, and all of the things that come from working with human beings in education. If you haven't listened to episode 132 with Becca Silver, definitely go check that out. It was all about growth mindset in coaching. And today I'm going to bring a little bit of a different perspective to these issues. I have a special guest. AJ is currently a conservator for the DeSoto ISD, which is a city in the DFW Metroplex. He's been working with shifting mindsets in his district through a few big changes, and I would love to share this work with you today. Before we dig in, I want to share a free webinar with you. This webinar is called Dare to Coach, and you can grab it at buzzingwithmissb.com slash dare with a capital D. This webinar is going to help you get into classrooms where you have felt like you couldn't get into them before. It's going to help you realize what kind of an impact you can make on teachers and how you can support teachers and coach them right now without being one more thing on their very full plates. So check that out at buzzingwithmissb.com slash dare to coach. And let's get ready to welcome AJ. AJ, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of talk a little bit about who you are, how you ended up doing the work that you're doing, and what kind of work you're focusing on right now? Yeah, I think I'm a lot, probably like many of your listeners, just someone who's passionate about what's possible for children and have found ways to try to be of service however I can be. Right now, uh, what that looks like is supporting superintendents and school boards at trying to create the conditions for improvements in student outcomes in the classroom. Uh, As 
most people are aware, like if there's any magic in public education, it's in the classroom. Like that's where uh, the amazingness between learners and educators happens. And so it becomes a question of, you know, what can we do to really bolster that interaction and make it more powerful? What can we do to build the capacity of the educator? Um, how can we create systems that build the sense of engagement of the learner um, with the belief that when those two things come together, the engaged learner, uh, the empowered educator, that that's, that's where the magic happens. That's where you know, growth um, and that's where improvements and outcomes um, really lives. And so that's, that's what I get to do um, all day, every day, um, is work with school system leaders to try to really help them support, create systems at the, at the district level that support improvements in student outcomes at the classroom level. That is fantastic. And I love that perspective on the work that you do, because it can seem like sometimes things feel like they get diluted whenever they start from the top and then it takes so long to trickle down to the classrooms. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing from you today about how we can use those, those kinds of big shifts to shift mindsets all the way down to the classroom level. You know, that's yeah. what we're really interested in right now. Um, and so I know, I know, you know, how important it is to start with the adults because you have your belief statement. I've seen it plastered everywhere about you. Student outcomes <laughs> don't change until adult behaviors change. That's I love right. it. Right. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about that and share why you chose that as a foundation for your work? Well, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm working with uh, three high schools in Ohio, specifically helping them make the transition from what I would describe as a fairly typical approach to discipline to a student-led approach. And so the end result of this process will be that in these three high schools, when there are initial issues uh, with behavior, whether it's before there's a violation and there's just conflict between students, um, or it's escalated to the point there is some violation of student code of conduct, that the first tier of intervention actually won't be adults, it'll be students. It'll be a group of students who uh, I've worked with and trained to be able to address those in a restorative manner. So the intention of this student-led restorative practices initiative is that when the majority of the inevitable issues of student behavior come up in a school, that it'll be the students um, who are really taking on the first step of addressing that, freeing up the adults to focus on uh, the other things that we really need them focused on. I, I don't need teachers spending all of their learning period dealing with behavior, but we don't have enough adults in the building to deal with this. And so this idea of a student-led approach uh, to uh, behavior practices is really important to me. But even as much as it this student-led approach to behavior is all about being student-led. I've spent the entire first year of the project just training adults. <laughs> like, we literally haven't trained a single student yet. We'll actually start training students next month. But we started last June, and we've been training every single month since then, uh, getting all the teachers and uh, principals and associate principals and the superintendent, school board members, social workers, counselors, everybody, trying to get all the adults trained first. That's because even if the vision is having a student-led approach to discipline, even if the vision is having a student-led approach to discipline, that's not going to work if the adults aren't 
on board first and if that first change hasn't been made with the adults. And if this is true with discipline matters, it's, it's true really everywhere, is that what we want for our students emerges from adult behavior in the buildings. And so whenever there is a particular set of things that we want for our students, it's going to be significantly different than what they have now. We should be looking for what are the adult behavior changes that will help facilitate that. Um, that work that I do in the classroom with teachers and students around discipline is really analogous to the work that I do with the adults in the boardroom with superintendents and board members. That If there are things that they want to see changed in their schools, they've got to change their own adult behavior first to really create a safe space for the behaviors they want to flourish in the classroom. That's such a fantastic point. Uh, we do keep doing the same things and wishing that something different would happen, right? <laughs> that there would be a different outcome. And uh, I feel like we are so entrenched inadvertently. We didn't, don't even realize it. We were taught in a certain way. We were educated in a certain way our whole lives. And then we become educators. And then we try to do replicate those same things. And reproduce the same thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Even if it's not making the change that we want, it's what's comfortable to us and it feels natural and normal. So we stick to it. And it's so difficult to change that that mindset of the way that we do things. So what are some of the things that like why what that are that are making it so hard for us to change these mindsets? Like where are we where are we getting stuck? How can we support people in making these big changes because we feel like no, this is a way we're supposed to do it even though we're not getting the outcomes we want. Yeah, well your insight that a mindset shift would be powerful and transformative is spot on, but part of the challenge is we don't actually spend a lot of time in that domain. And so when I talk about the idea that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change, it does require having a more rigorous belief around what drives changes in adult behavior. Mm -hmm. And as my team and I have really interrogated this, we, we've identified three key drivers of adult behavior change. The first is knowledge. Uh, as I know more, um, I'm able to do more. If I don't know anything, if I don't know English, that's going to give rise to one set of behaviors around teaching English. Yes, <laughs> right? I don't even know yes. English. That my ability to teach English is going to be somewhat limited. Um, so give me knowledge. Give me things. You know, that I now I know the language of English, and my adult behaviors regarding how to teach English are almost certainly going to change now that I know it. So knowledge is a driver of adult behavior change, uh, but it's really of the three drivers we described as the smallest of the three. The next key driver of adult behavior change is skill. Uh, where knowledge is what you know, skill is your capacity to use what you know. What is your fluency, your facility with the things that you know? Uh, if, if I know all there is to know about English, th that will certainly give rise to some change in adult behavior. But give me some instructional strategies. Give me some pedagogy. You know, give me some ways of using the knowledge that I have about English. And my adult behavior can change in even more powerful ways in the classroom. And so while knowledge is strong, skill makes knowledge even stronger. The, the more skilled I am, the more I can change my adult behaviors. And so the second key driver of adult behavior change is described as skill. Uh, and it's absolutely um, necessary, but also absolutely um, um, insufficient to catalyze the, the level of transformation that we often want to see in our schools. For that, you need the third key driver, which is mindset, uh, where 
Knowledge is what you know. Skill is what you can do with what you know. Mindset is something completely different. Mindset is about how do I see the world? Uh, how does the world around me occur? Uh, how do I make meaning of the things that are taking place in the world around me? Um, if I have all the knowledge and all the skill about teaching English, but my mindset is that little AJ doesn't actually want to learn. If that's my mindset, inside of the mindset, little AJ doesn't want to learn, all my knowledge and skills doesn't really matter. Because when I deploy that knowledge and skill and little AJ doesn't get it on the very first try, then inside of the mindset that little AJ don't want to learn, I'll be like, well, I told you the little brother, he ain't trying to learn anyway. So, so I'm done here. There's nothing else for me to do. I put my knowledge and skill out here. He didn't pick it up. Obviously, he didn't pick it up. Why? Because little AJ doesn't want to learn. And so inside of that mindset, it completely eradicates the potential locked away in my knowledge and skills. But as I have a shift in mindset, as I go from little AJ doesn't want to learn to, you know, little AJ does want to learn, uh, but there's, a, there's just a gulf between where he is and where he wants to be. And my job is to help provide a bridge over that gulf inside of that mindset. Now that unleashes the potential of all my knowledge and skill. Part of the challenge that I would lift up for you, Chris, is that I think all too often, all of the supports that we provide, all of the professional that we provide, isn't actually in the domain of mindset. It's in the domain of knowledge and skills. And so we think we just knowledge teachers to death, we just skill teachers to death, um, that, that that's what's missing. But often our people have plenty of knowledge and plenty of skill. But there is a shift in a way of viewing the world that could really be powerful and transformative. When we engage in PD that bypasses knowledge and skills, then we do so with a core assumption that the mindset is already fully in place. And if that's the case, then the additional knowledge and skills may be helpful. But if the challenge is their way of seeing the world um, needs to shift, then all the knowledge and skills of the world isn't going to help. Um, and and recognizing where my mindset is not as empowering of my practice as it could be, like that's a real challenge. That that involves self-reflect. This is where reflective practice comes in. This is where mindfulness, this is where metacognition, you know, all, all these habits of the mind come in. Um, and the more that we support our educators in these areas, I think we free them up to be able to interrogate the sense of mindset. Okay, where's my mindset working, not working? Okay, I know I'm supposed to be collaborating with my grade level teachers, uh, but where have I adopted a mindset about this particular teacher that is holding me back from being in collaboration with her? Uh, the collaborating of which could really unleash something great in my instructional practice this week. Like if we, as we help people wrestle with just like the experience of being human, uh, which is often left behind um, in the onslaught of knowledge and skills, knowledge and skills, knowledge and skills, as we actually do provide support for educators in the domain of mindset, I believe that can be powerful. I have loved everything that you just said. I love it all because it is so, we do get so caught up in these knowledge and skills. And granted, like you said, that's like a foundation. If teachers don't have that, they're not going to be able to, to move into yeah. the next phase. But I just, I love that. Cause you're right. So much PD is spent on, do you know how to teach this? Do you know the, you know, I was, I'm thinking about grammar and I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about the teaching of grammar. And so many teachers resort to like passages where kids find errors, which we know doesn't yeah. teach anything. That's an assignment. Right. right. And so we were talking about, they were like, why are they stuck here? I said, well, they don't understand how grammar works. 
right? They don't, they're not comfortable with teaching grammar. They don't themselves have the background knowledge of why is this a complete sentence or an incomplete? What's the difference between a complex compound? It's a lot to learn that as adults, we don't really use it unless you're teaching it, you know? (laughs) So, but kids need to know that to have the foundation, but then, so they can learn this, they can learn the knowledge of grammar. They can understand how it works. They can, they can have, they can have the skill set. They can be able to apply it in a lesson. But if they don't believe that that is the way that kids are going to learn and that kids can learn that way, then it's not going to yeah. matter. All of those things that we do, we're getting stuck there because they're still going to revert to their passages because they're going to say, this is what right. works and this is how kids learn it. And this is how I learned it you know, yes. when I was a kid. Right. And well, I turned out fine, which that's a whole other. That's not a knowledge or skill gap. That's a mindset gap. Yes. That makes so much sense. Um, And and you're right. We do. We get stuck there every single time. I mean, we see that happen in across across contents, across whether we're talking about academics and even whenever we're talking about the way schools function in terms of like admin, how they see teachers, how leadership works with with their faculty. We get stuck at all levels. In, with mindset. So what are some of, if, as you're, as you're working with your, your, all these different groups of people that you're working with, what are some of the main mindset shifts that you're trying to work on right now? And where are people getting stuck? What are you seeing happen? One of the things uh, that said, so there's not surprisingly based on this conversation, a large part of my uh, book that's coming out is around mindset and how um, as those of us working in public education, you know, what are practices that allow us to really deepen into that area and, and live out the full strengths of our commitment to children? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ones that um, I uh, speak to, one of the stories that I share, is a story about a, a Hungarian um, um, phys- um, physician uh, named um, uh, uh, Simowise. Um, Ignaz Semmelweis, and he was a physician uh, back in the 1800s. He um, was an administrator over these hospital wards that were birthing children, uh, but there are two different wards. There was one ward that was led by midwives, uh, by, by women, and one ward that was led by um physicians in training. And so you, uh, as a physician school, so you had uh, midwives who were training to be midwives. You had physicians who were training to be physicians um, with two different wards that were both birthing children. And what he noticed is he was looking at the data because he kind of fashioned himself as kind of this contemporary scientist physician. So he wanted to interrogate the data, figure out what can we learn from the data. Mm -hmm. As he's looking at the data, he noticed that the mortality rate in the physician ward was significantly higher than the mortality rate in the maternity, in the, in the midwife ward. He's like, well, this is odd. Uh, and so like any good scientist, he goes to work trying to figure this out. Why is the mortality rate so much higher in the physician ward than in the midwife ward? Uh, they're both birthing children. You'd think they'd be about the same. So maybe, you know, it has something to do with the difference of the population. He kind of looks at, you know, which moms are birthing. No, that, that, that didn't seem to be it. Um, he looks for, you know what? Uh, I noticed that priests 
um, come through the halls where the midwives work and bless the patients. So maybe there's a sense of faith and a sense of hopefulness that's permeating the midwives' ward. That's not the physician. So he invites a priest to come over, you know, and they start walking through the ward um, and blessing the patients, you know, the physician's ward as well. That changes nothing. And so he goes through all these experiments trying to figure out, and it just, he's totally stumped. He can't figure it out. And then through happenstance, unfortunately one of his colleagues passes and he notices his colleague who passed has a lot of the exact same symptoms of these women who are giving birth and he starts to go wait a minute why would this gentleman have the same symptoms of moms who have given birth why how are they why it looks like they both died to the same thing and that's when he starts to develop a revolutionary theory the one difference he hadn't accounted for is that the physician's ward, part of their physician's training is working on cadavers because they're also studying surgery, something that the midwives are not. And so the physicians, they're working with cadavers and then leaving that and going into the maternity ward and delivering babies. And so his theory is maybe there's something getting on their hands. And so to test this, he rolls out this protocol of having them uh, to sanitize their hands. And in doing so, the mortality rates begin to plummet. This is one of the first to know discoveries of the value of sanitation and uh, surgical practice. And so as he discovers this, he he then starts to have the midwives say, well, why don't you try this as well? And they do it. So their mortality goes down as well. And all of a sudden we have this new low normalized level of mortality across both wards uh, that's brought about by hand sanitation. Similarwise, he's, he now is preaching the gospel of, of this. He has this theory. Um, he has the data to back it up. And he goes out to the other uh, doctors of the day and says, we should all be doing this. Any guess how the doctors responded? Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. It, it's shocking, but I, my brother has told me this story. And uh, and yeah, it's surprising how they responded, certainly. Absolutely not. We're, that we're absolutely rejected and and not just partially rejected, so thoroughly rejected mm-hmm. that eventually they run him out of town. Uh, it destroys his career, destroys his marriage. Uh, he winds up getting institutionalized and dies alone in an institution at the hands of injuries uh, received by the guards. Mm-hmm. It was only until years later uh, when Louis Pasteur comes out with a, a more modern theory of germ transmission, the people fully understood the wisdom that he had to offer. Um, and then the practice of sanitation became more widespread. The, the, the challenge for these doctors was not a knowledge mm-hmm. uh, gap. They were given the knowledge. It was not a skill gap. They were given the skill. They didn't deploy either. And the reason was mindset. They absolutely fundamentally refuse to accept that it's my behavior that might be harming my patients. Mm-hmm. Completely unwilling to accept it. Um, if someone wise was here today, he might even go so far as to say, patient outcomes don't change until doctor behaviors change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but in recognizing that that's not a, that's not a knowledge and skills gap, like he filled that and still the behavior didn't change. It was a mindset gap. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I share that story uh, with educators suggest that one of the first steps in really growing in the domain of mindset 
is really being willing to self-reflect and look at what are the ways that my choices, my adult behaviors may have made it harder for my students to be successful. Uh, not because I'm waking up trying to think of how can I prevent little AJ from reading today, you know, but just with, with the openness, you know, that Ignace Semmelweis might encourage that with this willingness to interrogate, maybe it's something in my behavior that I haven't noticed. Just the willingness to do that is the key, is a key access uh, to mindset shift. My willingness to consider that my adult behavior might actually be making it harder for my students to be successful. And if I'm willing to have that conversation with myself, and if you really want to be powerful, if I'm willing to have that conversation with my with my team, like let's sit around, let's have let's reflect on what in my behavior might be making it harder for my students to be successful. Not in a judgmental way, not in a you're 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 a good teacher, bad teacher, right, wrong, but just in a in the curiosity that a scientist might have around how do we make more powerful my intention, um, how do we make it come alive in my practice? You know, this willingness to review and analyze what in my behavior may have made it harder for students to be successful. And kind of how, how have I been benefiting from that behavior? Um, how, but how has this not necessarily worked out for my students? And so I, I, I've had the privilege of leading a lot of educators and principals, um, as well as superintendents and school board members, through this conversation, really, this, this symbolizing practice of looking at my own behaviors and, and asking these calibrated questions around, you know, where are my impacts not living up to my intentions? Mm-hmm. Um, and where is that working out for me? But it's not working out for my students. So that's one uh, strategy that I often offer to folks as a way of really getting clear about you, you want to be like Ignaz Semmelweis about this. You don't want to be like the doctors who rejected uh, the knowledge and skills because it was incompatible with their mindset. You want to be like the doctor who said, you know what, I will, I'm prepared to look anywhere I have to look to cause improvements in student outcomes. That's so profound. Um, And I feel like what you're talking about is a huge cultural shift because we can be very defensive as teachers, as, as educators, because we feel like we're doing the best we can. Right. But then that's, it's it's definitely not about working harder. It's definitely not about doing, working harder is not the answer. I don't know people who work harder than you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally right. And I think that's what people feel like with what else can I do? You know, but that's not what we're saying. It's not about doing more. It's about changing something and approaching something differently. So how do you actually build this culture to support teachers and leadership in these changes? Because this is a huge cultural shift, like self-reflection and and really questioning. Well, and and I think great building level leadership can do this. And and I think we've all probably experienced at some point in our careers that building leader who could create a psychologically safe work environment, um, even in the context of a school system that seemed kind of cray-cray. Uh, so I think great building leaders could do this. But I personally don't want the well-being of all of our children hinging solely on do we have a rock star principal who can protect the culture of their building from you know, the vicissitudes of foolishness around them. Right. What I'd rather have is school systems that are actually making it a safer space uh, and making it more likely that schools are engaged in these type of conversations, engaged in this type of work. And so that's why you know, part of my belief is that, you know, what happens in the boardroom echoes in the classroom. If I want a culture of continuous improvement in the classroom, then I've got to be willing to catalyze that by demonstrating a culture of continuous improvement in the boardroom. If I want 
um, teachers who feel safe to self-reflect in the classroom, that means as superintendent and board members, we've got to be willing to self-reflect in public in the boardroom. Like we've got to be willing to be vulnerable publicly so that we create a psychologically safe place for our educators to be vulnerable privately. Uh, and, and so the, this idea that, that these two domains are radically disconnected and, the, and, the, and that there is no influence one on the other, I, I, I don't think the evidence suggests that. I, I think it's absolutely possible that when our leaders show the type of mindfulness uh, and the type of willingness to interrogate mindset in public at a board meeting, willing to take the risk of not looking good, willing to take the risk of being vulnerable. But I think when leaders are willing to do that at the uh, senior leadership level in a school system, I think it absolutely goes a long way to create a safe space for educators to to engage in that with their colleagues. You know, in, in, that, in that context, because I, I, coming from a different direction, one of the things I hate is when I see school board meetings where either the superintendent or the board are spending all their time blaming teachers or blaming parents or blaming children. All we're doing is creating a incredibly unsafe, hostile, and toxic work environment for teachers when we behave that way. Um, and what it does is it creates this, this fearfulness where folks feel like, well, now I have to be on the defensive. And if there are any weaknesses in my practice that might be holding my children back unintentionally. Well, I can't talk about those now because then people will be like, aha, we told you it was those evil teachers. And so it creates this real nastiness and children lose inside of that and teachers lose inside of that. And so if we can flip the script on that and we can really create a safe space for senior leadership to have a vulnerable conversation in public about their behavior that's been working and not working and where they need to make pivots, not looking at anybody else, just looking at themselves, if we can create a safe space for that, then all of a sudden now principals have a safe space. Like, well, hold on, there's some stuff I can change as well. It's, you know, I'm, I'm open to that. And the teacher's like, well, hold on, hold on. You know, I, and now that you all mentioned it, there's some stuff that I can do as well. And then it, it creates this cascade of psychological safety throughout our organization. So is it possible that you have a building leader that can create this on her own? Absolutely, we, we see it all over the country, unfortunately. My passion is for how can we create that as a norm um, in senior leadership so that our principals and teachers don't have to work so hard to generate a, a safe, nurturing, loving working environment in which teachers can be the best version of themselves. That's so great. And yeah, I mean, it makes me so happy to hear people doing the, this work at very high levels because you're right. It does happen here and there in little bubbles, but we owe it to our kids and teachers that that is, that becomes the norm, that that is the it way it should be the norm. That's, yeah. that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love, and I like that you talk about going first. We have to go first as coaches, as leadership, as That's right. you know, admin, as board members, we have to be the model of this is a way that we can function together. I'm going to become vulnerable so that you know that you can also become vulnerable. And then if you want to lead, then lead. Yes. Yes. I used to have a principal who said that he was a servant leader. He was like, I'm going to do whatever needs to be done. I'm going to lead by example to say, this is how, this is how we function at this school. We do what we need to do to do what's best for kids. And yeah. I remember a parent told me once the first time I, I saw your principal, your new principal, I didn't know he was a principal because he was sweeping up the floor in front of the <laughs> office. <laughs> so he was like, I had no idea that's who it was. I just, well, I said, you know, good morning. He said, good morning, you know, welcome to school. And, and, 
<laughs> he didn't even realize because there was something happened. He was the only one that was a, he was, you know, the one convenient to do it. So he just very quickly took care of this. <laughs> and, uh, so he, I've, I've, no always, idea. I've always told, um, I've always told my principals, look, anything you need, just let me know. I'm going to come through. I'm going to do it. And so I had, this is not my current school district, but my last school district. I had a principal uh, reach out. I was like, Hey, I'm really struggling. Um, and, and it was a, I'm sorry, middle school principal. I'm really struggling. You know, we're kind of short handed today. Uh, do you have any time you can come through? You said we can call you anytime. I was like, yeah, no problem. I'll come through. What do you need? <laughs> then the phone gets quiet. Um, I need somebody to cover lunch. <laughs> like, right? Middle school lunch. Like the best activity for you. Whole district. And so there I am. I spend, you know, I think about three hours as a large middle school basically pushing a trash can around the lunchroom you know, <laughs> the middle schoolers go um and so such like are you a new teacher here like no 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 i'm just just helping out for the day just you know principal asked me to come by and so yeah go ahead and toss your trash in and go ahead, uh, get ready to go to your next class um but that's 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 what that was what was needed in that moment right um and and, and i think there, there's a couple of things worth noting here one is that uh, I think there does need to be this sense of safety that if somebody's going to be in a position of leadership, that you should be able to call on them and put them to work. Um, and two, that that work needs to fit with your needs, not their sense of self-glory. Yeah. Yeah. And we do sometimes see people rise up who are like to higher, higher levels who don't have that kind of servant attitude of, you know, I'm no, going to do what needs you, to be done. You can't just show up in the building when it's time to read the third graders. And don't get me wrong. I love, love, love <laughs> reading the third graders. Like yeah. that's fun. I do all the voices. It's great. It's a, it's a whole thing. But you can't just show up when it feels good for you getting to show up the way that you want to. If you're going to lead, you need to show up the way folks need you, you know, in the times when it's not as glamorous. Um, and, and I think a, a willingness to do that mm-hmm. increases the likelihood. Like there are a few things that frustrate me more than if I see principals who I feel like are hiding out in their offices. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah. but I feel like if we have central office, central administrators mm-hmm. and superintendents who hide out in their offices, then we have principals who hide out in their offices. And if we have you know, senior leaders who show up at the building and are of service in whatever way they're called to be of service, then I think it increases the likelihood that principals show up in classrooms and are of service in whatever way it needs to be of service. Like I don't want principals only visiting classrooms to do formal observations, um, even though though I know some principals who aren't even doing that. So maybe that's a step forward for them. (laughs) But, uh, but I, I, I was doing a walkthrough with one of my principals once. It was in October. And we walked into um, elementary classroom. Uh, it was probably third, fourth grade. Um, and one of the students, and I'm standing right next to the principal, one of the students um, who is clearly the assigned greeter, you know, walks up um, and says, and looks right at me and says, uh, welcome to our classroom. Are you the principal? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Right. This is October. Holy cow! That's bad. and I'm standing right next to the principal. She looks me dead in my face. You know this, you know, adorable student who's doing her. She's doing her job. Uh-huh. She's doing her job. She was like, "Oh, welcome to our classroom. Are, are you the principal?" Oh I was like, uh, "No, ma'am. Let me introduce you." Apparently, for the you first time, 
<laughs> your principal. Wow. I mean, so, there, so there are extreme examples. So maybe them being in the classroom just that one time, I'll take it. But what I really want is I want a culture where principals know that our job is to be, you know, is to be of service. Is that the uh-huh. job of, you know, is to, is the job of being instructional leader is to be of service to, um, to the teachers uh, who you happen to be responsible for serving. But I think the likelihood of that very much hinges on does the central administration team understand that their job is to be of service? Um, and I think the likelihood of that hinges on do the board members, you know, do we understand that our job is to be of service? Um, um, I mean, and so again, this I, I said it before, you know, what my sense of these things is what happens in the boardroom echoes in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. It all trickles down eventually. And you do see the culture. If the culture of a district is not about supporting teachers and kids, then the the schools, like they're a lot less likely to be about supporting teachers and kids because there's no, yeah. there's no model. There's no ramifications. There's no consequences for not being that way. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the big things that you're working on right now to support mindset shifts? Like anything that any big projects you've got that you want to share about, I'd love to hear about them because if you're, if you're trying to support a big shift in the way people think it must be important work (laughs) is my thinking. Well, certainly there's the example I gave earlier about um, trying to reimagine how we address behavior at the high school level. Um, One of the reasons I'm such a proponent of this student led approach uh, to restorative practices um, is because I, I had this epiphany one day. I was sitting thinking about it like, why is it that if a teacher knows that what is most needed in the moment is that they need to sit down with these two students and help them kind of get reconnected and work their way through the drama, um, but it's going to take you know an hour and a half to do that why doesn't the teacher sit down and do that well obviously why the teacher doesn't do that because they got class coming up in 15 minutes mm-hmm. the teacher wants to do that but the teacher just doesn't have time and frankly we're never going to buy enough we're not going to have enough money to pay for enough you know auxiliary staff um interventionists to come in and have that hour and a half conversation that needs to happen that's that is that is a fundamental problem that we have is that they're that often in many of our schools, the needs of students uh, behaviorally exceed the time constraints of adults. And that's when it occurred to me, well, wait a minute, are there any other humans in the building who could be called into action, you know, to serve in these ways? And what really catalyzes for me is um, we did a analysis once of about five years of our um, behavior data and trying to see uh, what type of patterns emerged. And one of the patterns that jumped out of this big time uh, was, and we had a four tier um, behavior system. So there's you know, tier one infractions, tier two, tier three. So, you know, little AJ pushed somebody, you know, um, you know, yelled at somebody, pushed somebody, you know, punched somebody, you know, brought a weapon, you know, four tiers of behavior. What we found is when we looked over about a five year range, we found almost literally just one. And if I told you that story, you'd be like, yeah, that doesn't count either. So we essentially found no examples over a four-year period of a tier four infraction that wasn't preceded by a tier one, two, or three infraction. Okay. And that's when it became clear. If you really want to minimize tier three, tier four infractions, your access to that is to address 
tier one and tier two infractions. So this situation of getting to students when they're in conflict and they're you know, approaching that tier one level, this isn't trivial. If we can solve it there, then we help uh, forestall the escalation of potential tier three, tier four problems. Uh-huh. And so that's the combination of that insight that the way to avoid tier four issues is to address tier one issues. And the insight that we aren't addressing tier one issues the way our teachers would prefer to because we just aren't giving them the time to. And then thinking about, are there any other humans in this building who could help us take the time necessary to address the tier one issues? And that's where my passion for student-led restorative practices um, emerged. It's can we train a group of students in the building to in to be that first tier of intervention so that when little AJ does something to violate one of the rules or is in um, hostile conflict of some sort, that it's a group of students who deal with that and take the time necessary to address it and work through it, try to create the context in which little AJ is held accountable for repairing whatever harm they've created. Um, That if all of that can be managed by a team of students, not only does little AJ get the support that, that I need, but those students who are leading that are learning some powerful life skills around how to work through um, behavior um, you know, dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest issue that I've run across with doing this type of work, though, is that this is a really hard shift for adults. It is a really hard shift. And so the part of the reason we've been training adults this entire time and just now getting around to training students is just to really prepare them for this idea that you have grown up as an adult in a a retributive discipline framework that is essentially a copy and paste of criminal justice in the community. Uh, We just use a criminal justice in the schools model. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've grown up inside of that. And, And to shift from that toward a more restorative mindset of, okay, it's not about who did what wrong and how do we punish them? It's about what, who created what harm and how do we hold them accountable for repairing the harm that they created? Uh, how, how do we treat this like a learning experience? Who knew it was a school? How do we treat this like a learning experience rather than a punitive experience? Yeah. But that is a radical shift in mindset uh, that it involves people having a willingness to, to see things in a different way. Now, fortunately, in these three high schools I'm working in, like folks are taking it to it you know very quickly but there are all, there are some folks in each of the buildings who are like i don't know this this is just so different from what i experienced so different um from my journey that i don't know is this is this reasonable is it trustworthy these students don't have the skill set that i have so why would they be able to deploy you know be trusted with you know, discipline matters effectively and so that that is an example of that's an example of a significant where the barrier I, I don't consider a knowledge or skills barrier I consider it a mindset barrier so that's that's one example of the work that I'm doing that is really deeply involved with how do we reach people where they're at that's deeply grounded in their experience a, a grounded in their identity grounded in their own practice maybe I've been in practice for 15 years I've been doing it this way for 15 years that has a grounding effect on my mindset, my way of viewing the world, um, and that we've got to be, we've got to create ways to give educators opportunity to unpack that and um, and to really interrogate 
what is my existing mindset and how did how did I develop the mindset that I currently have? Is this the only mindset I could have around this thing? Or does it just happen to be the one that I developed based on my experiences and my belief system? And, uh, and to really create a safe space for people to question that and interrogate that and figure out, okay, now that I've kind of held this up and re really examining this mindset, now I can start asking different questions. Is this mindset really creating uh, the results that I want? Um, and where it is, then let's certainly hold on to it more quickly. Um, but but where it's not, where the mindset that I have, I can't actually point to results that this is getting. Um, in that moment, am I willing to consider something else? Am I willing to consider a different way of viewing the world? Um, and again, in, in as much as this is critical work to do at the classroom level, the building level, it's functionally identical to the work that I do with school boards, you know, which was to ask, you know, watch the average school board meeting and you think of do these people ever talk about children? Do they ever talk about learning? Like you, you could be forgiven for missing that this was actually a school meeting. It sounds like it could be any corporation in America. Um, yeah. but, but we are a mission-driven organization and school board members are here to be about the greatness of children, but often you know, the, the inherited knowledge, skills, and mindset aren't, simply aren't aligned with that. And so it's the same process with them thinking through the culture of governance as it is working with teachers thinking through the culture of behavior. That is so fantastic. It's And I, I feel like I've had to go through a lot of that the last few years. I'm a parent of young children. I have a one-year-old and a five-year-old and I have had to do so much like deconstructing and kind of building up. Well, how do I want my children to be raised? And it's the same thing. It's changing the mindset of how I think you best shape people into becoming yeah. people, you know, <laughs> like as adults. So what do we want for them as adults? Well, then how, what is the best way for me to help them become that? Because the way that I was raised, you know, no, no um, blaming on my parents. They did the best that they had with the tools that they had. And, and but I have right. better tools. I have more tools yeah. and I have information literally at my fingertips all day long about what we can do differently to raise kids. But shifting the mindset is absolutely hard. It's so hard because that's where all your habits are all built in all together. It's like this big ball of what you kind of have experienced. And so you're like yeah. trying to dig in there to, to make changes. And so it's, that's, that's admirable work you're doing. And I hope that you see some really good results with that over time. Likewise, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. We've got an amazing group of teachers who are just leading the rally. And, and of course, that makes all the difference. It You've does. got a bunch of teachers who are leading. Like we, I've got a few in my mind's eye. Like they're not out here taking no for an answer. It's like, no, we. this is what our students need. We all know this is what our students need. Now it's just a matter of how we're going to make this happen. And I mean, those, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just so blessed to work with you know, a team of folks who are on fire for what's possible for children and are willing to be disruptive of their own mindset and their own comfort zone in order to reach for it. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on finding those people. <laughs> That's half the battle. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. I have one more question. It's a light one. I've just started doing this this season because um, people were like, maybe we can learn about some fun things. <laughs> and so uh, I just want to ask, what is your favorite thing right now? Is there something that you're really loving? It can be a book, TV show, product, podcast, whatever, any activity, anything that you're getting a lot of joy out right now, joy out of right now. Okay. So this will be a little bit odd, but, <laughs> but it's also like super spot on for, uh, I suspect most of your listeners is, uh, and I'm, not affiliated with this company, so it's not like a paid advertisement right. or anything. But one of the things that I uh, learned about 
uh, as we were trying to struggle through this pandemic response is, is really on my heart for how do we continue to make sure that teachers get the quality of coaching they need um, so that they can continuously improve their practice. Like, I think it's, it's awful when I visit with teachers is like, yeah, so when's the last time that you received coaching that you felt really inspired you where you were able to have somebody observe your instructional practice and then sit down with you and uh-huh. work through some of your challenges and give you that the type of feedback that you know, our most effective teachers crave. Um, and then I'll, you know, it like just breaks my heart when it's like, oh, well, you know, we, uh, all of our instructional coaches have had to, you know, take classrooms because we've had a shortage. And so I haven't had anybody observe our instructions. Um, and so I was trying to solve for that. And I ran across, there's probably several companies that do that, but I ran across one particular company whose product I really like where they, uh, where the teacher can uh, set up uh, their phone or camera or whatever. They can record, you know, the classroom and record it from a few different angles if they want. Um, and then, um, you know, press a couple buttons in the app, it uploads to uh, this platform. And then the coaches can go in and leave notes that are directly assigned to specific uh, time slots within uh, the instruction. So it's like, oh, well, here, you know, 10 minutes in, you know, little AJ uh, raised his hand and had his hand up for five minutes um, and never got called on. And then after that, he completely stopped engaging for the rest of for the next hour. Um, and, you know, did, did you notice, like, oh, wow, you know, I, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, I remember he had his hand up, but he was, I, I didn't know what he wanted. And so I just kind of I got busy someplace else, but I didn't notice that after I didn't answer his hand for five minutes, that he completely disconnected from the lesson, that he was connected before that and got disconnected after that. Like things like that, that you, you'd have to be there. Like right. the, to me, the best coaching, somebody actually has to see what you're doing. And then in as close to real time as possible, not a month later, not a, not even a week later, but the same day say, Hey, the, uh, I was watching. Did you see this little part? Um, you know, what were you trying in that? Uh, did that work out for you? Uh, okay. Uh, have you tried this or this? Which of those do you think? Would okay, got it. And so you're just, we're just kind of iterative practice, low stakes. This is not evaluative. This this is not about right. being good or bad or right or wrong. This is just about continuous improvements. I'm going to be 1% better every day for the children that I serve. And so I found, um, you know, a particular uh, platform that does this really well. And so I've had the joy of deploying in a few different contexts to figure out can this help accelerate the quality, the quality, quantity, and timeliness of coaching uh, that people need to get better? And, and I've had good luck with that. So that's something new that I've just, that, yeah, you know, I'm, I've, I've never really associated technology and coaching like this. Right. But being able to uh, have this context where folks receive the coaching uh, that they need, um, but just in a different way. Um, so I'm not a I haven't had a chance to live with it for years now. You know, this is my first year playing with it. But that's something that I'd encourage people to look into. Like, if you can't be there in real time in the right. classroom providing the coaching, could you leverage an app like this where people would record it? The, the, the other thing that's really important about this particular app is that um, is that the teacher is in full control of who does and doesn't see their video and who does and doesn't comment, uh, can leave timestamped comments on it. And so that's really important to me because I, I want, again, I want the teacher to feel safe. Uh, and so maybe they, maybe there's a master teacher and say, hey, I want you to look at my video and can you give me some feedback or comments? Or maybe it is an instructional coach or somebody else. Um, you know, but tools like that um, really, I'm like there, there's got to be ways to leverage the technology to really help teachers be great. And that's that's one example I saw recently that I'm experimenting with. And 
Um, and I just encourage other people if you if you play with it, and you find something great. Email me. Let me know. Yeah, which app was it that you that you've used? So the one that I've used is called Sibme. S I B M E. I was uh, wondering if it was believing me. me. Yeah, I was wondering um, if it was Sibme because I had them on the podcast. Corey Camp from Sibme back in the first season, and I'm actually oh, I didn't know that. Like, I missed that. Yeah, yeah. She talked about how to use video in your coaching. It's one of my favorite episodes because it was so informative. I'm gonna have to go video. back and listen to that one. Yeah, you should check it out. It's actually really very good. Um, she gave so much information, like it was really detailed. <laughs> So I, I I love that. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. Sydney is great. So thank you so much for sharing about that. And how can people find you online or in the real world to learn more about what you're doing? Um, if folks want to learn more about uh, the work, they can shoot me an email. Uh, it's just aj at ajcrable.com. Just aj at ajcrable.com. Uh, or they can go to effectiveschoolboards.com and see some of the things that we're doing with really trying to help school boards uh, be the best version of themselves um, on behalf of the educators that they serve. Well, thank you so much for doing this work. And thank you so much for being here today with us. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you for the podcast. Thanks for what you're doing. I love listening and look forward to hearing more. That was excellent. I just loved the information that AJ Cravel shared today. And I would love for you to check out the show notes. You can grab any of the links that he mentioned at www.buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 134. I also want you to grab that webinar, Dare to Coach. That's buzzingwithmissb.com slash dare with a capital D. And um, I want to share with you what's coming up next week. I'm actually talking with Allison Peterson about building relationships with resistant teachers. So we've talked a little bit about big changes, adult mindsets, our mindset. And we're going to start looking at how we can build relationships with teachers who are not excited about us in environments that aren't super great for relationship building. I'm really looking forward to this topic because I get a lot of requests for it. And so because we all see it in our in our roles, we're going to share some actionable steps that you can use to change it. So definitely check us out next week in episode 134. You know what? Actually, I made a mistake. Those show notes for this episode are going to be at episode 133, buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 133. You can check them out there. Um, And until next week, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.